We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you kindly, and on this 20th day of February, just about 5 after 5 o'clock, good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We're here every day at this time, Monday through Friday, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We'll plan on doing more of the same today, even with the kind of wet Eeyore sort of, um, I don't know, somewhat uh, funky weather we've been having lately. But the good news is the reservoirs are all getting filled up, and uh, hopefully that means another year without drought. But, uh, boy, after a while, you do start to feel a little bit waterlogged, don't you? Well, let's see if we can't um, swim up to the top of that water and catch a breather for a moment. Uh, I want to begin with a comment, if I might. Those of you that that are older than a couple of days might recall one of the leading minds in conservative thought, William F. Buckley, who spoke like he was born in Britain, but in fact was um, U.S. born and bred and university educated. He was the founder of the National Review magazine, uh, led a think tank, and of course, most notably for most Americans, best known as his role as host of Firing Line that ran for, I don't know, better part of 30-something years from the mid-60s in through almost the year 2000. In many respects, um, he was the tone setter, the trend setter for um, conservative thought and conservative action. And the other day, and I bring this up because the other day I happened to stumble across an archive of his program on the Internet and um, soon found myself binge-watching William F. Buckley. And it was fascinating, not only in terms of some of the guests that he had on the program, but the articulation of the conservative position on, for example, countries like the Soviet Union and the existential threat that that ideology has posed to democracy across the globe. And believe me, it was a real Cold War that had real potential dangerous global implications. And I suppose at the end of the day, it had it not been for MAD, the concept of a mutually assured destruction, who knows what the Russians might have pulled. Anybody who remembers the uh, the events in October of 62, was it 63, um, with um, literally just staring down the barrel of Soviet-made nuclear warheads that were going to be parked just 90 miles off the Florida coast, um, fortunately in those days, um, Jack Kennedy didn't blink, and um, we were able to uh, convince, who was it? It must have been Khrushchev at the time. We convinced Khrushchev to uh 
pull his ships back and take his nuclear weapons back to Russia. I share all this to say that it is interesting to note how significantly far the the general American opinion of Russia and the existential threat that she poses has changed just since the end of the Cold War. Uh, note, for example, the recent television interview, and I use the term loosely, interview, between Putin and what I can only presume to be Russophile Tucker Carlson, certainly drifting further and further away from any notion of being a legitimate journalist by the nature and content of what I would consider, and I think many observers, a largely softball two-plus-hour-long interview, again, putting the word in quotes, with Vladimir Putin. Ironic that barely a week after that ran on X did we get news of the successful assassination of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Now, curiously enough, demonstrating a lack of understanding of the differences between economies, between countries, inflation between countries. I mean, this was, you know, blatantly on display. But even the notion of somehow coddling somebody like Vladimir Putin, who has not only a history of being a brutal dictator, who has had a long history of jailing the opposition, even killing the opposition, and going to war with innocent neighboring countries, Ukraine, Crimea, Georgia, uh, and the list undoubtedly, if left unchecked, will continue to grow, raises a very curious question, and that is, what has happened to the fundamental viewpoint of conservatives in this country, who at one time called a spade a spade and recognized the threat that Russia posed and all of a sudden now has done an about face. Now, mind you, very little has changed in Russia in terms of desires for global dominance and uh, dictatorship and uh, uh, lack of uh, freedom of the press and freedom of religion, on and on the list goes. So if nothing has changed over there largely, what's changed here? Let's get some insights to some of these broader questions as we're joined by the founder and president of Reimagine. America, Joyce Cordy. Uh, Joyce, we always appreciate your time and your valuable insights. And um, I think our conversation in part today, we're going to get into some other topics as well, but at least to lead off to look at this topic. Um, the interview goes off two hours and 20 something minutes long of what most people would consider be raw Russian propaganda being perpetrated or at least facilitated um, by Tucker Carlson. And then, of course, on the heels of this interview, running um, word that Alexei Navalny, a otherwise healthy 48-year-old man, suddenly collapsed and died after a walk. Just a little bit too curious there. Give me your sense in terms of why such a massive drift from the the clear-cut views of somebody like William F. Buckley 40 years ago to where we're at today in terms of conservative thought on this topic. I'm not sure that conservative, separated from Trumpist, has changed. There is a Pew poll out this week that says 74% of Americans support U.S. and NATO support to Ukraine against Russia. And that's an important, and and 43% of those uh, of the people polled said it was like their top issue. Um, 
I don't think, I mean, you know, uh, you know me well. I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic. Um, but I find it very odd that Putin gives a two-and-a-half-hour lecture on Russian imperial history, and that's basically what that interview with Carlson is, a week before the Munich Defense Conference, and Navalny succumbs to sudden death syndrome on the opening day of that conference. I just can't believe that's a coincidence. I think I think the current dysfunction in American political thought, some of it due to the number of channels. I mean, as a as somebody who's found radio and podcasting, I'm, I'm guilty, guys, of being a part of this. Um, that that we have, you know, we've so disintermediated our channels that people like Tucker Carlson having lost his perch at. Fox News uh, is seeking any form of um, publicity and attention that he can get, and and recent pronouncements by the assumed Republican nominee for president this fall is somebody who this week said to Putin, "Do as thou would like to do." Uh, leaving my mouth hanging open. Um, and, and saying, and, and we're forgetting in this Ukraine thing, just on the news today, that the Ukrainian soldiers have to ration their ammunition while the Swedes and the Finns, etc., are busily trying to arm them with new weapon systems because the U.S. has failed to pass that uh, very important national security uh, supplemental. Um, let me let me say again, because we all know I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, that when we give weapons to the Ukrainians, we're not giving them money, okay? We're giving them advanced weapon systems made in the USA. So what's at stake here is not just Ukrainian sovereignty, but our national security. If we have to start to retrench on our own internal capability to make armaments, we're in even more serious trouble than we think we are right now. Well, and undoubtedly, I mean, if you if you look back at, at history, uh, yeah, there was a great argument post-World War One, leading into World War Two, uh, that we didn't want to engage in foreign entanglements, that we knew that there had been tremendous loss of American life on the heels of World War One, and we would allow um, basically Europe to fight its own battles, and America would be protected by uh, the wonderful coastline to the east and to the west. Uh, little did we realize when those opinions were being offered in 1918-1919 that uh, within a short 20 years we would be changing our tune, uh, particularly as Hitler had run roughshod over the totality of Europe, had a stranglehold at least on the uh, the western front of Russia, pre-Stalingrad I'm speaking, and 
was just about to make mince meat out of Great Britain, which essentially would have meant that the Germans would have controlled the entirety of the continent, save Italy. But of course, Hitler and Mussolini were uh, best buddies anyway. And uh, we suddenly realized between the events taking place in Europe in one direction and what was happening in the Pacific theater with the Japanese in the opposite direction, that there was likely going to be a divvying up of the totality of the free world between the two sides. And that would leave America not only stuck in the middle, but with zero allies and likely become the next target of the ire of either Mr. Mussolini or Mr. Hitler. And so we responded because we recognized that it was in not only our best interest, but in the interest of preserving any modicum of democracy outside of the United States, we had to act. Act we did. We ended up saving the Pacific Theater and the European Theater from the tyranny of the Germans, the Italians, though they had been less of a player toward the end of the world, and of course, the Japanese. Suddenly now, this notion of of having a responsibility to protect other democracies uh, seems to fade it into blue. And I know that years of wars from Korea to Vietnam to Afghanistan, that we've uh, we've engaged in some military battles that we were decidedly on the losing um, end of the stick on. But still, does any of the foregoing absolve us of... Responsibility, not only in terms of uh, what did Roosevelt call us the 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 uh, arsenal of democracy of of being one of the principal protectors of democracy, let alone understanding as we protect the interests of others overseas, we are protecting our own interests. And I'll make one comment, and then we'll have Joyce Cordy respond to this. I find it interesting, as much as there had been talk about, oh, the European nations are not doing their fair share. In contributing to uh, NATO as if there's a set membership fee. There's not. There's a recommended percentile of what they should spend on defense spending. But you know what's interesting? As we talk about the various countries not doing their part and therefore the United States should abandon NATO, you know the one part of that equation we've completely left out of it? And that is that since the founding of NATO, post-World War II, 45-46, Article 5, that essentially states... If one nation gets attacked, it's as if they had all been attacked and therefore obligates all nations to respond. Do you know that Article 5 has been called into play exactly once in 70-plus years? One time. You want to know what country triggered the reaction of NATO to go to defense for that nation, to stand shoulder to shoulder with that nation? You want to know what country? You might think, well, gosh, Craig, maybe... um, Maybe Romania? No. Could could it be in the Balkans? Maybe maybe it was a small country like, uh, I don't know, uh, Switzerland. No. Actually, the only time that Article 5 was ever triggered was in defense of the United States of America. One time. Post 9-11. And we went to NATO and said, we're going to need some help. And NATO said, okay, guys, we're pulling the trigger, Article 5. And the nations of NATO went to war in defense of the terrorist attack on the United States. So the very outfit that has done more to protect us 
than to outright protect the fellow members we think ought to be dispensed with. Or at least some people do. Wow. History's lessons might suggest otherwise. Joyce Cordy with us today. She is an outstanding high-level businesswoman, native Californian. She believes that it is not inconsistent for businesses to be ethical, responsible, and profitable simultaneously. Her thought content can be read at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. A timeout back with more of our conversation with Joyce Cordy as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation with Joyce Cordy of Reimagine America, online at reimagineamerica.org. So, Joyce, help us understand, if, if NATO was formed to protect Europe from the influence of any nation that may wish to attack one of her member nations, and, and largely, certainly through the entirety of the Cold War, it was considered to be Russia, of the Soviet Union as the greatest threat. And if indeed the only time Article 5 has ever been invoked in this 50 or sorry, the 70 plus year history of NATO was actually on behalf of the United States, why even the argument that somehow this is either an outmoded, outdated organization or one of which America no longer needs to participate in? Majority of people in the United States who think that. Um, NATO has has grown from the first six or seven nations uh, that formed the uh, permanent security council at the UN to about to fifty five or sixty nations. The idea of collective defense is equally important, as you pointed out, in Southeast Asia, where the CETO alliance is an attack on one, is an attack on all, including Japan and India and the United States and Australia, et cetera, and, the, and South Korea, et cetera. Um, collective defense was the lesson we learned out of World War II. Another lesson that we learned out of World War II was the importance of providing defensive weaponry and maintaining a strong domestic defense industry that was the benefit of Lend-Lease. If we had had to start from zero or scratch or whatever you want to call it, at the, at the point that Pearl Harbor attacked um, the uh, that Pearl Harbor was, was attacked by the Japanese, we would have lost that war. We began in 1940 to build that defense capability. And that is vital to, that lesson is vital to the discussion that we're having today. Um, and and it, it is beyond, you know, again, 73% of Americans believe that we should help the Ukrainians. We also, just this week, learned about the fact that the largest nuclear reactor in all of Europe is now in Russian hands and it's on the brink of failure. If it fails, it contaminates the Black Sea, half of Europe, and all of Turkey for a century. 
These are not small stakes, folks. These are not small stakes at all. And these are issues that really ought to give us pause. And and I want to come back full circle to where we we started our conversation, uh, Joyce, and that is that, as you're suggesting, there is a strong percentage of Americans that do not hold some of these uh, offbeat minority opinions Um, outside of trying to uh, get some attention in the media. What would possess a uh, journalist using that word uh, in this case uh, quite loosely to not only grant so much unfettered, unchallenged airtime to Putin at, at one point, and I, I watched the entire interview myself. At one point, I clocked Putin, who offered to share a history note that went on uninterrupted, unimpeded, unchallenged for a full 20 minutes and ended with the conclusion that the reason why Hitler had to invade Poland is because they wouldn't turn over what he wanted. Ha! Well, I guess that's the reason why Putin invaded Ukraine. Oh, well, next topic. Let's go to lunch. I, I mean, it, it's it's astonishing. And, and then I, I want to go further to say that it, 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 it went from being a propaganda platform for Putin to a campaign of misinformation. For example, at one point, um, Tucker decides he's going to take us on a bit of a tour of the Moscow uh, underground system, the subway system, and marvels at the grandeur, the fancy art deco architecture, the um, marbled walls and ceilings, etc., etc., and pondered openly the question as to why we couldn't have such beautiful subways here in America. Now, I've been to Russia on two occasions. I've been through the underground. And the one minor little detail that Mr. Carlson forgot to uh, share with his viewers was the fact that the reason why America doesn't have such opulent subways the way Moscow does is because they were built in the 1930s under Stalin with slave labor. So maybe what we should do is go out and find ourselves some slave labor to build prettier railroad stations and subway stations. And then adding adding insult to injury, uh, Joyce, he took us on a trip of a grocery store, marveled at the fact that they were so big, bright, and modern, and that without paying attention to the prices. They just put food in the cart that would provide food for four people for a week and came to a bill of $400 and was absolutely astonished how cheap it was and that that realization drove him to be angry, I think was the word that he used, at leadership in his own country. Now, being able to buy weeks worth of groceries for four people for $400 might sound like a bit of a bargain until you realize that the average Russian only makes $756 a month. So what they spent in their little shopping spree would consume more than half of one's entire monthly income. Russia right now facing 20% inflation rates, an interest rate of 13%, and 
and it just seems to me that somebody of his background, his education, and his previous position in the broadcast world would be far less ignorant than apparently he is, which then leads me to wonder, Joyce, is this ignorance or is this just outright propaganda being used, what, to gain some attention for himself and to boost the 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 position, the viewpoint, the propaganda value for Putin and Russia in America? Yes. As Tucker Carlson is an extremely well-educated psychon of a very, very wealthy American family. So, no, he knows the truth. He's, he's, he is, he's either, he's either, you know, he's either a sociopath or more likely, you know, the cunning, conniving son of a, you know what, that he is. Um, he is seeking any form of relevance he can get. He's not as crude as uh, some of his fellow um, uh, right-wing talk show hosts. Um, and and um, but but no, uh, Tucker Carlson is. Um, he lent himself um, to Putin as a propaganda tool in exactly, exactly the same way as Charles Lindbergh did to Hitler. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, the the, the, the shocking thing in that case was that, uh, you know, uh, Lindbergh, uh, even though at the time a national hero, was, was, was easily to dismiss uh, as being misinformed. In this case here, you can't claim that. And I think it's important, and I'm bringing this up because listeners to this program need to be need to be tellers of the truth and embracers of the truth. And when there is blatant false information that is being put forward, and, and here's what's important about this, especially for those of us who have served the flag, been in the military for the flag, had relatives who died for the flag in, in military service, and, and value what it represents for an American citizen to go on foreign soil and bash the United States... I won't use the word treasonous because that's an inappropriate application of that word. It gets tossed around far too frequently these days, and most people that use it don't even know what it means. But I think it is abhorrent, and I think it is embarrassing. And to to allow oneself on foreign soil to be used effectively as a propagandist for a foreign nation that does not embrace the same democratic ideals as the United States and could even be technically defined as an enemy of ours and to use that to not only elevate or provide aid and comfort to our enemy but then to also at the same token out of the same mouth denigrate and debase the United States I mean you're 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 upset with your leaders because you don't understand why why it's not possible to buy that much food for only $400? I mean, can you be that ignorant and not understand that prices don't work the same in every country and inflation rates don't work the same in every country and the amount of money in the standard of living is not the same in every country? It sounds cheap. Wow, only $400 for a whole week's of groceries for a group of four adults till you realize that the Russians who are paying those prices are only ma- making $756 a month 
out of the 400 you just spent for one week. It's just astonishing. Let's take a time out, come back with more. Joyce Cordy with us today. Information available about her work online at imagine, reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Joyce Cordy. Information again on the web at reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, looking at the current debate that's been taking place in the House, and, and a lot of this is clearly spelling some trouble for new House Speaker um, Mike Johnson, who I fear may wind up following um, Mr. McCarthy shortly with the way things seem to be shaping up. And and, and it's tragic. And I, and I understand that there have... Uh, there there's been um, concerns voiced in terms of passing bills that would provide more uh, weapons, more munitions to Ukraine that, well, America's appetite for foreign wars has waned uh, on the heels of things like uh, Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. We're just we're tired and we're tapped out. And I understand that. But then, of course, the other side of that argument is that it's a global world. And while we can all lament the fact that it's become this way, uh, it got here because it was supported in that direction by Democrats and Republicans alike. And now here we are. We rely on other nations for so many resources. And as we discovered during COVID, uh, when those supply chains get interrupted, uh, there's an awful lot of pain to be felt. Pardon me, felt all the way around. So, how, how do we extract ourselves from the global economy as a nation without bringing the totality of not only manufacturing but access to all of the raw materials back to the United States? Not so easy if you're talking about lithium for batteries, for example, uh, and, and and do so to become an isolationist nation. I mean, it just seems to me, post World War II, those feathers got let out of the pillow, and I just don't see any way that you can bring them back. Again, I mean, can can we do things to reverse some of the trends? Absolutely, but to suggest somehow that we're only going to be able to take an isolationist track, and that if Putin is allowed to do whatever in the H he wants, according to one uh, public official, well, well, what kind of disasters does that spell for Europe and ultimately our allies, and then ultimately for us? Well, well, Craig. The answer to the question, can we extract ourselves from the global economy, is unless we'd like to go back to the early 20th century industrial policy. If you want to drive a Model T Ford, I guess we could. (laughs) If you want to drive an F-150, no, we can't. Yes, we can produce enough gasoline to power it. All right, but we cannot produce. Our cars are final assembled in the United States, but the parts come from all over the world. That's one example. All right, television. You want a television set? In the United States, there ain't no such manufactured thing. All right, we are very, very good. We are the second largest manufacturing producer in the world. And you know what? We do it for 10% of the labor. We need to cultivate our domestic industry, but we need to cultivate it as part of a global system because we cannot reverse the trend. You know, we cannot reverse everything. And we need to bring more of our our healthcare supplies, et cetera, onshore. Of course we do, because that's part of national security. 
But we are not, we don't have enough rare earth minerals in the United States to be self-sufficient in the 21st century. If we want to continue to be the most successful industrial nation on earth, and we are, then we've got to be a global trading partner. We don't make aluminum. And our Canadian neighbors who do can't make enough for us and the you know and the rest of the rest of the world. We need to depend on Europe for some of that. So, so are we in a place right now in terms of manufacturing and the economy where aspects of this paradigm shift, without regard to how we feel about it, do we like it, do we not like it, that that there has been a deep and broad enough paradigm shift that you just can't, as I suggested earlier, uh, somehow stick all the feathers back in the pillow again. I mean, no. For example, I look at, at World War II, there was a point at which the United States by herself was producing twice as many tanks and airplanes as the output of Britain and Russia combined. And Russia used it with with the size of their country, their natural resources and their labor pool. Russia used to crank them out. And yet the United States turned out twice as many as Russia and Britain combined. And I look at that and I think to myself, Joyce, were we to get ourselves into a World War II style scenario again, there's no way would we could compete because we don't have the people, the resources, or the manufacturing capability. No, we've, we've allowed, we've allowed our, our manufacturing, our, our heavy-duty manufacturing, steel, you know, the basic, basic building blocks, even cement, to become products we import. All right, do we need to have a basic industry in those areas? Yes. Are we part of a larger global trading network? Yes. Is Russia independent? China independent? Hell no. We have built a world of interdependency. The question is, who's going to get their bloody fingers into the coffers of that, independent, of that uh, global uh, interdependence? That's what, we're, that's what we're arguing about, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, one of the reasons that we've Tucker Carlson can get away with this kind of propaganda or I'm going to say two reasons is we don't do a good job of teaching history to our children anymore and we haven't for a couple of generations the other thing is that post Vietnam we did away with the draft so today 1% of America defends the other 99% that's shared responsibility that you then that then got translated onto the factory floor where everybody was willing to do everything you know to get the product out the door we've lost that sense of of shared responsibility because we've we've farmed that responsibility not my son i'm i don't want to send my son to war no somebody else's kid can go and you know what do you know how close we are? How how dangerous people like Carlson are? Right this minute, as we sit here today on the radio, Craig, you and I alarmed about Carlson and the and and you know Soviet uh, aggression and the possibilities of Chinese aggression, etc. As we sit here today, there are American service personnel 
in every one of the Balkan states, and increasingly every day since uh, for uh, the last year, they have faced more and more Russian troops on the other side of those borders. If there's an incursion, if God God forbid a missile attack were to, were to by accident hit Poland, American troops are on that front line right now. They may not be your son, they may not be your husband, they may not be your brother, but they're Americans. They're Americans who are putting themselves in harm's way and what we do domestically to say, oh, well, you know, Putin's not so bad, blah, 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 you know, is is we're putting their lives in jeopardy. Well, particularly, I think, when the message gets transmitted that he's going to be given all the latitude that he wants, that there's no sense of of, of fear. I mean, why, why would he fear the United States? The United States can't even make up its mind to defend a democratic ally and a European nation. I mean, I, I realize that there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who aren't aware of the fact that Ukraine is part of Europe, <laughs> which is probably a big part of the problem that we're we're dealing with right now, the, the level of, of ignorance um, in the United States Congress. But you, you look at this and you think to yourself, how would a dictator of any stripe look at us and be afraid? I mean, I, you know, the, the sense of it, it, we've shifted. We've heard it said, well, you know, if, if, if certain leader is sitting in Pennsylvania Avenue, they'll be afraid of them. But did we make a paradigm shift where it used to be Russia was afraid of America and what Americans would do, knowing the capacity of what we had and the tenaciousness and the stick and how hardworking we were? And, boy, you get us into a battle as we did in World War I, World War II, we are going to stick through it and we are going to win. And, and that was the sense, I think, that also served as a deterrent. But you strip all of that away and then think somehow, and this is, I think, a major a major mistake from a diplomatic standpoint that we think it's about personalities. We think that if if one leader likes the other leader and feels like they would be somebody fun to, you know, go play a, a round of cards with or enjoy dinner with or go to the football game over, and that somehow is the key to global diplomacy, uh, that's kind of short-sighted, isn't it? Absolutely. It's totally short-sighted. It, it's, it, it's all... It's more than that. It's naive. You know, this is not 16th century Europe where we're going to divide up the known world and the unknown world into spheres of influence of Portuguese, Portugal, Spain, and England. You know, this is not going to be, you know, uh, Trump, Putin, and Xi saying, oh, God, we're going to we're gonna just all be buddies and divvy up the world, and the three of us are going to be, you know, uh, breathlessly wealthy and powerful. This is a much more complicated world. And you're right. We used to be really, really good at, as Americans at working together for common goals. And we've lost that. We've gotten crossed on that. We've, we've been divided into these camps that that 80% of Americans don't recognize, don't want to be a part of, and have tuned out. And again, we no longer have a draft. We, we, we make it somebody else's job to go serve in the military. 
we don't teach history and civics as 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 fundamental building blocks in our uh, secondary and um, and college curriculums. Um, and and then and then we have a hundred, two hundred, three hundred channels of of communication, and so you have people like Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson competing for, you know, who's going to be the alternative messenger to mainstream America. And, and meanwhile, we hear news, as we did two days ago, of let's call it what it is. It's the assassination of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Now, he had been Correct. warned, if you go back to Russia, they're going to arrest you the minute you step foot off the plane, which is exactly what they did. And, you know, the fact that they won't even turn the body over suggests that they want to hide the evidence. And there's a track record of this. So why, why A, why we're surprised we should have known that it was eventually going to go in that same direction, and B, the fact that this does not serve as a wake-up call for mouthpieces on behalf of Moscow, uh, like a Tucker Carlson, and I realize there may be some of you that listen to this program that like his brand of journalism. My, my question is, are you really scrutinizing it, or do you like him because he says things that make you feel good or agree with your conclusions and opinions, but may run contrarian not only to written history, agreed settled history, but also run contrarian to the best interests of the United States and of America. And believe me, when you go overseas and badmouth America on foreign soil, you're not doing it because you're a fan of America. And I think we oftentimes, Joyce, even have a difficult time trying to identify uh, where the real threat is coming from. And, uh, you know, uh, so, so often I think it just it, it just defies the imagination to see the degree to which people are willing to work to convince themselves that the truth in front of their nose is not the truth at all and uh, and make it something else. And yet there's there's no um, contrition. There is no sense of ownership. Um, people of this sort will make these sort of uh, proclamations, even if it's detrimental to the well-being of the United States. They'll get away with it. They won't be held accountable and they'll continue to do that. And many of their supporters will just cheer them on. It's tragic. And it goes one it goes one step further, Chris. How the so? Speaker, the Speaker of the House has had all the briefings. He is part of the Gang of Eight, and he is single-handedly preventing a Ukrainian a national defense supplemental that will pass overwhelmingly to come up for a vote. And there's only one reason for that, and he was told to oppose it. For political reasons, give me a break. Yeah, we, this we, is the security of every single person listening to this program right this minute. And, you know, I, I get the idea of wanting to use political circumstances for political gain. Politicians do it all the time. Um, I get the fact that you'd rather have the good stuff happen on your watch so you can take credit for it. But we've already seen the retreat of Ukraine from one city that has now fallen into Russian hands. This thing can go like a domino and it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. 
and the notion that somebody who's not in power or leadership that could influence decisions being made by the United States. I mean, what happened to the independence of the branches of government that this is not even one of the three branches that would suggest that things can't be done because we don't want the wrong people to get credit for it. But is it fundamentally about taking the credit or fundamentally about doing the right thing for the best interests of our allies, but most importantly, for the best interest of our country. I think there are questions we all need to be asking ourselves. We really need to be asking ourselves. Then draw your own conclusions. Joyce Cordy, again, founder and creator of Reimagine America. Information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, we always appreciate the time and the valuable insights. Six o'clock from KFAX.